All right, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5. In our U.S. uh, Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson listed the pursuit of happiness as one of our unalienable rights. In our uh, postmodern society, we have our own definition of what that looks like for us to be happy. Uh, For most of us, the pursuit of happiness involves primarily chasing after things, doesn't it? Uh, Things that might bring us joy, that might bring us uh, satisfaction. And so we start out by saying if you're going to pursue happiness, then you need a great education. You need a husband or a wife uh, that knows just what you want or what you need. And if they happen to come from a family that has money, that's even better, right? And you also need a great paycheck doing something that you want to do. In fact, as I thought about it this week, it'd be great to have a paycheck not having to do anything. That would be great. That would be part of pursuing happiness. You need a really nice house with everything in it that you need to be comfortable. You need nice stuff, right? I mean, you need a nice TV, and you can't have the nice TV unless you have the good sound, and you've got to have the right appliances and just the right stuff in the house to make everything nice. You need a nice car. Not just four wheels that roll down the road. I mean, you need nice wheels. Our country tells us that we need two and a half kids. I've always felt sorry for the half kid, but we need about two and a half kids in order to be happy. I I question that somewhat, but we'll leave that there. Uh, We need to be able to go on nice uh, vacations, and obviously we need to be able to enjoy good health and all of that so that one day we can retire early. Isn't that the goal? We retire early where we play golf, we play bingo, we play shuffleboard, and we sip lemonade by a pool full of people that look just like us. That's our goal. That's happiness. That's joy. That ultimately brings deep satisfaction. Do you know the kind of person that's described in those characteristics is completely contrary to the kind of person that Jesus says will ultimately be authentically happy and satisfied? Jesus would say something that is exactly the opposite of those things. In fact, one of the most politically incorrect sermons uh, that was ever preached was preached by the greatest teacher that ever lived on the planet. We know that sermon to be here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 as the Sermon on the Mount that was preached actually on the side of a mountain. The Beatitudes, if you've studied the Beatitudes, and if you've been around Northwest any length of time, we went through the Sermon on the Mount uh, a couple of years ago. You know the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, you know them to be paradoxical. In other words, they appear to be statements that contradict themselves or that actually defy logic. And by normal human standards, uh, things like humility and mourning and desiring righteousness and mercy and persecution are not the stuff of which happiness is made. In fact, uh, to the natural man, to the immature uh, Christian, to the carnal Christian, such happiness actually sounds like misery with another name. In fact, as one commentator has observed, he said it this way, it is as much as if Jesus went into the great display window of life and he changed all the price tags. But if you know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, you know that Jesus is going to totally disrupt the whole religious system of the day. He's going to say things that will amaze people, and at the same time, he's going to say things that will actually tick people off. And the things that he says in the Sermon on the Mount actually will stand in stark contrast to everything that the religious leaders of the day were actually teaching. 
If you have your Bible opened up there, I want to read to you verses 1 through 9. We've been through this passage in another period of time. I want to focus on verses 10 through 12 this morning, but let me read verses 1 through 9. It starts out saying, Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside and sat down. I've wondered as I've read the Sermon on the Mount as a preacher myself, if Jesus kind of looked around and he went, Wow, there's a crowd of people. I think I'll preach a sermon. And I thought, Wow, that's pretty incredible, right? I mean, I know the time that it takes me to be prepared to preach on a Sunday morning. And here Jesus just looks around and goes, wow, there's a crowd of people. I think I'll just preach. And then to think that he, that he stood there and preached to these people the greatest sermon, I believe, that was ever preached. And he preached it for, at least in our English Bible, for three chapters is a really incredible thing. So he looks around. He goes up onto the mountainside. He sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach these people, the disciples and others that were gathered, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is this. It's that we should know real blessing, real joy, real happiness, real satisfaction. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how that is possible. And he teaches that the kind of lifestyle that produces this kind of happiness, and it, and it becomes then the running theme all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, the next three chapters... Now, here's what you need to understand about this word, blessed. The word blessed, used in our English text, translates the Greek word makarios, all right? It's a great word. It's an awesome word because this word used here implies an inward happiness that's neither the result of circumstances nor subject to change on the basis of circumstances. Now, stop there for just a second, all right? Think about that. Let me say that again. It's a word that means inward happiness that's neither the result of external circumstances nor subject to change on the basis of circumstances. That's what happiness is in the context of this particular word. It always signifies a happiness produced by some experience of God's favor and enjoyed when there is a corresponding behavior towards God. It refers to the spiritually prosperous uh, condition of the person who is the recipient of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. As God is continuing, we talked about it last week, justification at salvation. Sanctification is the process by which I become who God wants me to be. But so much of our happiness in our world could never be defined in that way. In fact, as I've thought about it this week, I have to confess to you, as I oftentimes do, my own failures, and I've thought, this is undoubtedly one of the greatest areas of frustration in my life as a follower of Jesus. In learning to understand what true happiness is all about, and that it is not about me simply responding to these external circumstances, it is a decision that I make internally to be satisfied, to be happy. And so... I find that my attitude is determined by my circumstances. Let me give you several uh, examples just in the, in the, uh, uh, just for the benefit of being fully transparent. Okay. And you'll, you'll get what I mean. Some of you need to raise your hand when I say certain of these things, because you're going to go, that's me too. All right. 
Some of you may go, wow, is he really that simple? But this is what I'm talking about of how external circumstances can affect joy. You get up in the morning, right? The best time, dietitians will tell you this, the best time to weigh yourself is when? It's in the morning, right? That's why when I used to see a dietitian, uh, for a while, obviously I'm not anymore, but when I did, I always wanted to weigh in the morning. And by the way, the dietitian that I used to see happens to be here this morning. She would tell you this. And I always wanted it to be on a Friday morning because I didn't work on Fridays. That was my day off. And I always, it didn't matter what the weather was outside, and I came in a really lightweight pair of shorts and a lightweight T-shirt, right? Because I wanted to weigh the very least that I could. Now, some of you are sitting there going, oh, that's really pathetic. That's really simple. And you do the same things, okay? You're just as guilty. And so here's how it goes. You get on the scale in the morning. If you're down from the day before, then it's going to be a great day, right? Because you look down at the scale, and you're not as fat as you were yesterday. And that's an awesome thing. However, if you look at the scale, and it's up from the day before, you are depressed. Watch out. That's focusing on external circumstances rather than inward. I've gotten better at this one, but it used to be when my team lost, uh, look out. If my team won, it's going to be a great day. In fact, even last night as I took a break from my study to watch a football game, I knew in my mind if my team wins, my next three hours of study are going to be awesome. However, if they lose, I'm going to have to psych myself up to get this thing done. How pathetic is that? How sad is that? What's for dinner? If it's my favorite, she loves me. She loves me more than the day she married me. If it's something that somebody else likes, it's not going to be such a great evening. How about this? Some of you can relate to this just this week. It's election night. My candidate wins. God is still in control. He is on the throne. My candidate loses. Does God really care? Is he really out there? Does he really understand what's gone on? Do you see my point? I could go on and on and on. For so many of us, our joy is determined by external circumstances rather than being determined by this great word that Jesus starts out the Sermon on the Mount being makarios, which is very deep inside, a satisfaction that is found by living a righteous, holy life. Instead, for so many of us, our happiness is simply based on external circumstances. And so Jesus' opening statements in his sermon climaxes with this last great truth that those who faithfully live according to the first seven Beatitudes are guaranteed to experience the last one. If you do all of the ones at the beginning, you're definitely going to experience this last one. If you're going to live a righteous life in this world, if you're going to, be, if you're going to faithfully live according to biblical principles, then you will inevitably be persecuted for it. Living a life in cultural Uh, in contrast to the cultural norm, will generate hostility from those who march to the beat of a different drum. It'll happen every single time. You should not be surprised. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 10. This is how he said it. Blessed, in other words now, makarios, satisfied, deeply satisfied, are those people who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, Makarios, you are satisfied. I mean, there is a deep internal sense of satisfaction when people insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's when you're really satisfied. 
That's when you experience true joy, true satisfaction. Verse 12, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Talk about a statement to empty the seats. Here's Jesus. He has come to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And one of the first times in which he's speaking in public, he says, hey, you're going to be really happy if you're persecuted. Now imagine many of these people who thought that he was coming to relieve them for persecution were going, hey, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in signing up for that. I've already been persecuted. What's going to make it different for me to suffer this kind of persecution? Now, before we look at the form of persecution to the follower of Jesus, let's make sure that we understand the reason in this context, in this text, for persecution. This is often a very misunderstood and misapplied portion of of the Bible. Notice the reason for the persecution that brings inward satisfaction and blessing in verse 10. Because of what? Because of righteousness. That's when you have a deep sense of satisfaction, when you are persecuted because of righteousness. This means that there's no promise of happiness for those who are persecuted for being a nuisance. You know who those people are? Maybe some of you are going, yes, I'm one of them. You go to work and and, and you stand up for what you believe in, but you do it in in an incredibly annoying way. You're the guy that's got the sandwich board on in Times Square going, turn or burn, right? And you're shouting it from the light. The guys are trying to figure out what to have for lunch, and you're going, turn or burn. And people are going, you're a moron. Get out of the way. And you're going, I'm suffering. I'm being persecuted for righteousness. No, no, no. You're being a nuisance. For those who are just simply annoying, those who are being difficult or disagreeable, Uh, There is no reward for that. There is no blessing. There is no deep sense of satisfaction that should come from that. Those who find satisfaction in preaching a biblical standard to those who are not followers of Jesus without failing to live it out in your own life, you are not suffering for the sake of righteousness. Maybe you are suffering for the sake of legalism in your own life. You need to stop that. You need to stop having a little pity party for yourself and walking away thinking you are so righteous and holy because you are suffering for being a pain in the backside. That is not what this text means. If you're being persecuted for being obnoxious, I say good. You deserve to be persecuted for being obnoxious. We were never called to be obnoxious We were called to be salt, to be the preservative, to be the flavor. We were called to be light and darkness, but we were not called to be obnoxious. There is no happiness, there's no satisfaction or eternal reward for being obnoxious, for being annoying. Okay? That's not what this text says. Obviously, there's no blessing that comes from wrongdoing. This should go without saying, but it can't be left unsaid because of the simple reason that for so many of us uh, living in our postmodern culture, we think that if we, uh, uh, it, it, we attempt to justify wrong uh, by cry, cries of unjustified persecution or prejudice, right? So you can do something wrong and you can receive punishment and go, oh, you know, we see it on the news every day, every day. Yet Peter wrote, if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal. And we go, amen, that's true. Well, if you're a murderer, if you're a criminal, if, I mean, if you do those things, you know, that's, that's your own deal. And then he goes, or even a meddler. 
You go, meddler. I mean, come on, that's not so bad, right? No, if you suffer for being a meddler, for being a slanderer, for being a gossip, there's no reward for that. And so then it begs the question, if this verse does not mean being persecuted for what is objectionable or doing wrong, what does it mean? What does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, for Christ's sake? Simply put, it means to be persecuted for being like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said that those who are persecuted for being like him are going to be happy. There is going to be a deep sense of satisfaction in your life. He's basically saying, if you're going to be like me, people are not going to like it. They're not going to like you. And he was right. In fact, when Jesus came into this world and he lived a righteous life, and what that did was that exposed the evil of the world, and people hated him for that. Before he came into the world, people could get away with hypocrisy, with lying, with dishonesty, with selfishness, with greed, you name it. Why could they get along with that? Because they used as their standard other people. Isn't that easy to do? It's easy for us to go, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. So as long as I'm not as bad as so-and-so. But when Jesus came and he set the standard of holiness and of righteousness, all of a sudden people hated that. People didn't like that because that exposed them for who they really were. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, verse 20, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching... They will obey yours also. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. Persecution is the unavoidable reality for those who are living out the Beatitudes. If you're going to live that way, then you are going to be persecuted. If you're going to live a life that is marked by righteousness, persecution of some sort is going to be a part of your life. Righteousness always brings a negative response from those who are living in unrighteousness. It exposes the flaws. I will say to you this morning, if you sit here and you listen to me uh, speak this morning, and if you're a follower of Jesus and you do not experience any form of persecution in your life, as we're going to define in just a moment, I would say to you, something is wrong. In fact, someone once said, and I believe this to be true, I think I've given this to you before, uh, if we're not criticized... If we're not ostracized like Jesus was, maybe it's because we're not doing what Jesus did. See, we have a tendency of going, if I suffer persecution, then something must be wrong. And yet Jesus is saying to these very religious people, no, actually, if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, you're doing something right. If you're not being persecuted, something is wrong. In fact, Timothy, or Paul said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, All who desire to live a godly life, to live godly in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. The second century Christian leader, Tertullian, was once approached by a man who said, I've come to Christ, but I don't know what to do. I have a job that I don't think is consistent with what Scripture teaches. What can I do? I must live. To that, Tertullian replied, must you? Loyalty to Christ is the Christian's only true choice. To be prepared for kingdom life is to be prepared for loneliness, misunderstanding, ridicule, rejection, and unfair treatment of every sort. Let me ask you this morning, are you prepared to do that in order to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? High school, middle school students, I ask you the question because I really believe for many of you, you live right at the edge of some of this every single day. Those of you especially that go to our public schools. 
You live right on the edge of that. Are you willing to, to be lonely, to be misunderstood, to be ridiculed, to be rejected, to be treated unfairly for the cause of Jesus Christ? Let me give you just real quickly in our last moments together, three ways in which this persecution, according to this text, comes into the life of a fully devoted follower of Jesus. First of all, number one, people will insult you. People will insult you. Living a life that is marked by godliness will inevitably bring insult from those who hate or rebel against the gospel or moral absolutes. Now, I'm stepping out just a little bit of my comfort zone this morning, but I'm going to do this to illustrate the point. The clearest way for me to illustrate this is to use some of the events of the past several months in our national political campaign. I want to remind you this morning that if you stand up for those who have no voice, the unborn, for example, then you will be insulted. Things will be said such as this. You don't care about the health of women. You're narrow-minded. You're stuck in the 50s and they want their policies back. Yet God said in Psalm 139, For you formed me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. And yet if you stand up for those who are voiceless, in the culture in which you and I find ourselves living, yes, even in the United States of America, you will be insulted. People will insult your intellect. You are misinformed. You're not progressive in your thinking. And should you dare to believe that a marriage is between a man and a woman, you'll be labeled as a hater. You'll be later labeled as homophobic. You'll be called culturally backward or not progressive. By the way, lest you think that that's going to get easier, I would say to you again in Paul's words to Timothy, it is not going to get easier for us. We are the salt of the earth. We have a preserving effect upon this culture, those of us who name the name of Jesus Christ. I would submit to you that for so many of us, we should focus on those things which are really important rather than those things which at the end of the day really aren't important. It's amazing how many of us will vote according to what tax rate we pay but fail to be concerned about those who have no voice. May God help us. If you're going to faithfully stand up for righteousness, be prepared to be insulted. Not too long ago, in fact, I shared this with you. I had uh, lunch with a student that I had. I was his youth pastor, and it was right around the whole, uh, right after the uh, marriage amendment had passed uh, in the state of North Carolina. And I sat there with this young man that I love dearly, I really do, who is incredibly liberal, and he insulted me one time after the other. And I consider that a badge of honor. I tried not to be obnoxious, but I tried to stand firm on what I believe Scripture to say. And by the way, if you're our guest this morning and you don't know me, let me assure you that I love homosexuals. I love people that have uh, chosen to end a life uh, by aborting that life. This isn't an issue of loving or hating people. But we must be prepared to stand up for what is righteous. And in doing so, we will be persecuted. We will face insult. Number two, people will physically harm you. Now, in the early days of the church, the price paid was often the ultimate. 
To choose God might mean choosing death by stoning, by being covered with pitch and used as a human torch for Nero, or by being wrapped in animal skins and thrown to vicious hunting dogs. Uh, to choose Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior might mean torture by any number of excessively cruel and painful ways. And, and that was the very thing that Christ had in mind when he said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to be willing to bear your cross. Now, here's the dilemma. For most of us living in the United States of America, we will likely never have to deal with physical harm because of our faith. I will say that I do believe that there may be days in the not-too-distant future when it may very well be reality in America. While at this time in our country we don't face physical persecution, I don't want you to forget this morning that we have many brothers and sisters in this world who are not nearly as fortunate as we are. In fact, this Sunday just so happens to be uh, the day which the universal church remembers those who are being persecuted across our globe for their faith. Did you know that 73% of the world's population lives under some religious restriction? And in fact, statistically, they tell us that most of those people identify themselves as Christians. There are 400,000 Christians that are living in North Korea. Experts estimate that 25% of them today are living in labor camps. Did you know, I just realized this this week, there is not a single church building in Afghanistan today where we have spent billions and billions and billions of dollars. Did you know that there are 100 million followers of Jesus that are persecuted because of their faith and there are 400 million others who are at risk of being persecuted? In fact, watch this. Here's the story of one of those Christ followers. In those days, speaking about God was forbidden. But after freedom came, people began talking about God. For the first time in many years, they could speak about Jesus Christ. And now, just as before, the government has begun limiting this movement, this speaking about God. But this time, the authorities say we cannot believe in Jesus. We must be Muslims. This is how they are preventing the people from following Jesus today. Today, we believers have many troubles. If we are caught with Christian books, we are given fines and taken to jail. In fear, the believers have been bringing their Christian materials from their homes. They have been turning them in at a secret place. I was the one who collected these books. We have been keeping the books safe, hoping that one day we will be able to give these books back to the people of our country. The authorities discovered where the books were hidden. They took them away. Yesterday, I made a phone call to my wife. She said to me, Come home quickly. The police were there looking for me. They had gone to my parents' house even, looking for me. My wife said she was afraid that she might lose me. I don't know what will happen when I get home. 
but I'm ready for whatever may come to me for the sake of Jesus Christ. Please pray for me. May God give me strength and help me through all the difficulties that may come. Pray that my family will be saved. I do not regret what I have done. Jesus said that if we are following him, we will have troubles. And he promised he will not give us more weight than we can bear. I have asked myself if I'm ready to carry this weight. I believe I'm ready. here and just pray for those people that find themselves in those circumstances. God, we, I watch a video like that and I, it, it doesn't even seem real to me. And yet I know statistically that there are many brothers and sisters of mine who today had to worship in secret. God, if they were found out, that could mean their lives, they could be taken away from their families. And yet they worshiped, and they worshiped joyfully. God, we remember today those that share our faith but do not enjoy our freedom. And God, I pray for them. I pray that you would give them strength, just as this dear brother asked us to pray, that you would give him strength to bear the burden that you've asked him to bear, that he would carry it faithfully, knowing that there are Christians across the globe that stand by him. God, I pray that uh, we would do our part in praying, but that we would also uh, look introspectively at our own lives to make sure that we are worthy of carrying our cross. So God, we pray for those uh, today that uh, suffer under religious persecution. We pray for them that you'll give them strength, that you'll give them mercy, that you'll give them grace. We look forward to one day spending all of eternity with you in heaven with these brothers and sisters who have carried the torch of faith so well in this life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for many of us, we will never be physically harmed because of our faith, but I think it's important for us to recognize that there are those that will. Uh, Lastly, people are going to falsely accuse you. People are going to falsely accuse you. In resentment against the gospel, the Romans invented charges against Christians, such as accusing them of being cannibals, because in the Lord's Supper they spoke of Jesus' body and drinking his blood. They branded the believers as revolutionaries because they called Jesus Lord and King and spoke of God's destroying the earth by fire. In fact, Jesus' critics in Matthew eleven nineteen said of him, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Can you imagine? Saying to Jesus, the very Son of God, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. And if the world said that of the sinless Christ, what might they say about us? What might we be accused of? Arthur Pink comments that it is a strong proof of human depravity 
that men's curses and Christ's blessings should meet on the same person. We have no sure evidence of the Lord's blessing than to be cursed for his sake. In fact, one pastor said it this way. I like this. It should not seriously bother us when men's curses fall on the head that Christ has eternally blessed. So let's get practical for just a moment. What does it look like for us to suffer persecution for the sake of righteousness? Let me get real practical just for a few moments as we close. It's the high school guy that goes into the locker room and he's laughed at and he's mocked when he's asked the question, hey, have you ever been with a girl? And he says, no, and they begin to call him a virgin. That's it. It's being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of a biblical standard. It's the student who's accused that They think that they're better than everybody else because they refuse to do some of the things that everybody else does. And so they're accused of, you think you're better than us. It's the woman, and some of you will relate to this. It's the woman in the neighborhood who's not invited to lunch with the other ladies because she refuses to gossip and slander. It's the businessman who loses a contract because he's unwilling to compromise. He's unwilling to cheat the system. It's as simple as a child that's on the playground who is ignored by the other kids because they choose to be a friend to the kid that's just a little bit different. See, that's what it means in a very practical way for us to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Let me ask you this morning, do you suffer any persecution in your life for the cause, for the sake of righteousness? High school guy businessman, wife taking care of your homes? Do you suffer anything, anything for the sake of righteousness? I love the whole flow of this passage, believe it or not. When we're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, we're happy. And so I get that. That produces an inward satisfaction. It's genuine. It's the real thing. It's not based on all those external things that I talked about earlier. And, and so if, if, we, if, we, if we experience that, the inward joy, the inward satisfaction, and that's the joy, that's the happiness that comes, in a very sense, our reward is now. And yet, if you look at the text, it's not just that our reward is now, but the text also says that our reward is in heaven, which is a great thing, right? Because that's where, that's where our citizenship is anyway. It's in heaven. That's where we want to have approval. But look at the end of verse 12. When we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we are able to identify with an incredible list of people who have gone before us on this road of suffering, which is an amazing thing. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to this text. Otherwise, just listen and I'll read. Hebrews 11, 36 to 40, where the writer of Hebrews says this, And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We identify with those people. 
Can you imagine that, businessman? When you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, when you lose that deal, you identify with all of those people that have gone before us. You are suffering because of righteousness. Students, I can't say it enough. When you suffer persecution for the sake of righteousness, you deal with all those that have gone before you. When you are mocked, when you are made fun of for doing what's right, for living a life that is holy, that is set apart for God, you identify with all of those people that have come before you who have suffered something so much greater than most of us will ever suffer. John Chrysostom, a godly leader in the 4th century church, preached so strongly against sin that he offended the unscrupulous empress Eudoxia as well as many other church officials. I love this story. When summoned before uh, the emperor, Chrysostom was threatened with banishment if he did not cease his uncompromised preaching. Look what he said. His response was, Sire, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. Arcadius said, Then I will slay you. Nay, but you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ and God. Which came with the answer, Your treasures will be confiscated. To which John replied, Sire, that cannot be either. My treasures are in heaven, where none can break through and steal. Then I will drive you from man, and you will have no friends left, was the final desperate warning. That you cannot do either, answered John, for I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. History records for us that Chrysostom was indeed banished, first to Armenia and then farther away on the the Black Sea. In fact, he never arrived there because he died on the way. But neither his banishment nor his death disapproved nor diminished his claims. The things that he valued most highly, not even the emperor could take away from him. And so as we close this morning, here's the big idea. Satisfaction in your life, true happiness, makarios, an inward satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances but comes from deep on the inside. Satisfaction comes not from external circumstances, but from internal peace, knowing whose you are and where home is. That's what it means to be truly satisfied, to live a life that is worthy, worthy of being persecuted for the sake of righteousness and the cause of Christ. Let's pray.